0: Hola familia, soy yo, Emanuel Padilla, co-host of the Mestizo Podcast, and on this bonus episode of the podcast, you're about to hear a conversation I had about a month ago with Dr. Itzel Meduri-Soto and Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena about their year in the scholar and residence Program. The scholar and residence Program at World Outspoken is an opportunity for academically trained scholars to engage in work that supports the church. In this case, I have a conversation with both professors to understand what it was they did in their year at World Outspoken, who it was that they were trying to serve, and how they went about doing that work. We focus in particular on the theme that they produced or focused on this year, the theme of listening, and how it was that they sought to listen to their students, listen to their colleagues, and make sense of white spaces. Prepare to be challenged and to hear some creative insight, some pastoral insight. From these two wonderful scholars. Sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Bienvenidos to a bonus episode of two podcasts today, the Mestizo podcast and the feature over here at World Outspoken. We've got a few things that we do, but today's conversation is so important that we decided to publish it on both podcasts. So this is a bonus conversation. It's just me today, no Elizabeth Conde Frazier. And uh, you know what? I think that's okay because I've got a lot of contending to do here in this conversation. I'm with I'm with some heavy hitters. If Elizabeth would have been here, I think my brain would have fried. And so I'm good with the fact that I'm, I'm flying solo a little bit today. But I have with me here today two scholars and residents of World Outspoken as they look back at the first year of the program. We're here today with Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena. Is Luis, right? I got that right?
1: Sí, hermano, sí.
0: Hey, and we're also here with doctora Itzel Meduri Soto. She was not Meduri Soto when we started the scholar in residence program, and so she might be new to you in name, but you know her as well. Itzel, welcome to the show.
2: Hola, muchas gracias.
0: Y'all have been on a podcast before with me, so there's not a ton that I need to introduce you to, but I do have a question. You both are also working at universities, and it's always fun to ask professors about the the craziest things that students did as they wrapped up the year, right? Uh, So I'm curious, right? Was there a paper, something crazy written in a paper that you were like, what were they doing or thinking? Or maybe a grading situation that you're like, oh my gosh. What was the wildest thing that happened as you concluded your your school year this year. It said, uh, we'll start with you, It said.
2: Well, a lot of wild things. I'm trying to pick one, um, a lot of burnout. So and requesting like five or six page essays, for example, I get a one pager. <laughs> but I think on the positive note, uh, getting uh, gifts from students, I got um, chocolate, uh, cat socks, and a starbucks gift card because students know that i like chocolate that i like coffee and that i like cats (laughs) so that was a pleasant surprise
0: cat socks
2: yes yes they're they're wonderful as in socks for
0: your cat or or socks for you that have cats on it
2: exactly so human (laughs) socks with with cats on them
0: (laughs) For a split second, I legitimately thought that they gave you socks for your cat. And I was like, A, no cat is going to keep socks on them. And B, we're in Los Angeles. What cat needs socks in Los Angeles? So
1: I was very confused.
2: That would be cute, though. I'll consider that. <laughs>
0: if, I, was
1: thinking, I was thinking the same thing, Hermano, because there are these dog shoes that we yeah, right. use in, in Illinois and in the Northeast. So I thought maybe there were cats' socks Totally. I was 100 percent convinced some some like
0: super LA student was like, yo, we got this is what we gonna do. We're gonna get socks for Doctor Meduri Soto's cat. <laughs>
2: that, that that would have been great, but this gift was was pretty amazing. It was very thoughtful.
0: That is very thoughtful. Wow, praise God for for thoughtful students.
2: Yes, indeed.
0: Yeah. Dr. Cartagena, what about you?
1: So the the, the students like uh, like Hermione was was saying about hers, uh, they were so tired. It's been a tiring two years uh, for for many uh, studying during a pandemic, and so there there wasn't a whole lot of craziness on on the student side. I, I will say, however, that one of my colleagues definitely spiced up the year uh, because this colleague decided to come into one of my classes and put posters up of Baylor acknowledging that Baylor didn't win the NCAA basketball tournament. So they were, I mean, must've been 20 or 25 in my classroom before I got there. So that was different. Uh, so the faculty might've had a little bit more energy, at least some of them than the students, but yeah, the, the students were, they were tired this year. Super petty. That is next Super level petty. petty. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> we, we know who that faculty is. At least I'm pretty sure I know who that is. <laughs> we uh you know we, we won't talk about the hills in the world but,
1: that's right but... we won't we won't die on that <laughs> hill that's right
0: <laughs> well hey as you've uh as you've worked in your respective institutions, you've been listening to your students, to the other faculty you have written about those contexts, and so we want to bring that into the conversation as well. that's part of why I asked about how the end of the year wrapped up for you um I think that's important to be considering, uh, as you talked about. Our students are tired, faculty are tired. the uh, The overall demeanor and tenor, right? The temperature of higher education at large, not just in the CCCU Christian University Network or circuit, is a lot of exhaustion. And we have chosen this year in the Scholar and Residence Program to to focus on listening, right? That was the theme of the year: listening as people. Uh, expressed their exhaustion in a variety of ways to listen, and so I'm wondering as we think about it, as we look back on the scholar and residence year and the work that we produced, I'm wondering who it is that we were actually listening to, right? Um, and, and Nathan, I actually want to start with you here, as uh, as you kind of you actually proposed the theme, right? And so I want to start with you to say, you know, who are you listening to?
1: Yeah, so there were four main groups i was listening to uh the first was to uh latino latina students who are in christian higher education and are in what are called historically and predominantly white schools so schools that are historically established principally for white students and white faculty and white staff and also, they tend to be predominantly white, meaning the majority of the population will be racialized as white, seen as Anglos. Um, and so I was listening to the concerns of Latinas and Latinos in these schools and, and thinking through, for example, them saying, we, we wish we knew more about the theologies and the, the biblical studies of our gente. We, we wish we had a language to help us understand the challenges of being in these spaces uh, and so you'll think of the second piece that I wrote where I was talking, we ended up calling it No Context, No Gospel. That was one way of, uh, of me offering to those who, like me, went into historically and predominantly white institution not knowing much about the, the histories of, uh, of Latinx theology and biblical studies and offering one piece to help to give some important names and uh, some important ideas about um, how people like Asirene Padilla or um, Elsa Thames have talked about the significance of contextual theology and did important work in uh, New Testament theology and also in in systematic theology. Uh, But at the end, I also wrote a piece on racial microaggressions and racial battle fatigue, uh, because a lot of students especially uh, those that are racialized minority students, they were feeling the strain, not only of being in historically predominantly white spaces, but of all the forms of racism that are dominating the news. And and so I wanted them to have a language uh, because that was one of the things I wished I had when, when I was in school. So, so one was, was students. The second was faculty, um, Often, faculty that are in the schools that, that Hermani Zell, and I are in, um, they also are looking for more insight into traditions from the people that they're from. They're looking for language. And, and in particular, one of the pieces I wrote was about the temptation to silence. And so they're looking for a, a, somebody that can describe what it's like to be inside these institutions and to feel the institutional pressure to sell out, to be quiet about the problems that are present don't support the students, don't vocalize the ways that you are exploited or oppressed or treated unjustly. And their pressures are tremendous. And they're, they're, of course, frequently connected to your ability to stay in an institution, your ability to receive something like tenure. So I wanted to give voice to to, to that. Um, then a third group that I had in mind um, were those who are interested in multiracial solidarity, and especially are interested in, in Black-Brown Solidarity. Now, here I'm thinking about Black, especially in terms of those who are not part of, of the Latinx community. I'm thinking about, for example, African-Americans or Afro-Caribbean uh, persons that aren't uh, uh, la- uh, aren't going to identify a- as Latinx. And then those who are going to identify a- as Latinx. So one of the things that um, I did was engage uh, Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who's an Old Testament scholar, and she's written on Song of Song and the presence of anti-Black interpretations of of song of song and so I wanted to engage an African-American sister and to think with her and then we end up getting quite quite the response a lot of people were supportive and then there were some people that were not supportive and were challenging uh the, the first piece we wrote and so I I wrote a second piece and one of the things that I thought was really important there is I addressed what I saw was this gross erasure of her voice in my first piece so a lot of people were acting as if I, wasn't engaging uh, Dr. Agafni, but was flying on my own uh, with my interpretation of Song of Song. So the second piece uh, was my effort to maintain solidarity in in the face of of practices of erasure. And and the last thing I'll say is uh, I wanted to give voice to those who care deeply about Scripture and are trying to think through how to have contextual hermeneutics for their experiences. And so really in all of my pieces, you'll see my efforts to engage Scripture in light of particular circumstances, particular settings, um, because I, I think that for many of us um, the in these historically white spaces, whether they be schools or even in churches that are near the schools, uh, we feel like nobody's talking to us in our particular settings, and nobody's helping us apply the Scriptures to where we are. So those were the four groups I, I was listening to.
0: What you're telling me that world outspoken published articles that dealt with the Bible directly, <laughs> that focused on scripture? No way. Who
1: would have thought?
0: Who would have thought? <laughs> I, I want to go back to a line before before uh, we we asked it said who she was listening to. I want to go back to a line that I that I thought was really interesting. You talked about in that first group the Latino students who who were in these Latina students, Latino students who were in these. Uh, predominantly white organizations, whether they be churches or, or institutions of higher learning, um, you you use that kind of off quoted, we get it all the time at World Out Spoken and emails, messages, DMs, everything, right? Mm-hmm. I want to know the, the theology, the writing, the scholars, my own, pe- I don't know my own people. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was talking about this yesterday with Emily, shout out to Emily Alexander, managing editor at World Out Spoken. Uh, I was talking to her yesterday, I've been thinking a lot about the ways that the kind of social media algorithm works mm-hmm. because it strikes me that there's a kind of book list that has turned into a syllabus. You know what I mean by that? Yep. Everyone is reading. And and let me, before I, before I proceed in my comments here, let me just say, I am not critiquing the books on this book list. I think they're important texts. Okay. But everyone's reading, you know, Jesus and John Wayne, the making of mm-hmm. biblical womanhood, right? Um, Jamar Tisby's color of compromise. Those are, essential books in terms of their historical record that they provide. But one of the things that I do think is a problem about taking this book list and turning it into a syllabus, right, is that during the history that these books record, during the exact periods that they're covering, there was an alternative church doing alternative things, right? There was a church otherwise. And uh, that article that you raised, right, No Context, No Gospel, Mm -hmm. is pulling from one of those alternative voices, right? René Padilla. And I think that that's important to say that part of what we're doing at World Outspoken, given the name of our organization, is imagining the world otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. And is, is pulling from the, the traditions that are unknown to translate back out to say, hey, here's from, from a tradition, from a vo- voice, Dr. Agafni is another one that you raised. Here's a voice that you don't know that has been saying what you've been aching to hear for a long time and here's how that voice needs to be heard now it's just a difference right uh, i'm a little worried when we think about you know the book list turning into a syllabus i'm worried about the ways that misses these other voices all right that, can i add that's one thing to horse. that point
1: go ahead so, oh, 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 one thing and that is that most of those book lists don't have a single latina latino author you're not even finding justos mañana on the book list uh, and so, even even texts that are seen as helpful and um, by allies in efforts to promote the kingdom of God across racialized lines typically engage in erasure of the Latino experience. Yeah, um, and, and I and I think particularly um, of how how much richer, for example, uh, Kristen Dumais' Jesus and John Wayne would be if the reflections on say Reagan's interventionism in Latin America were a part of it because part of the idea of what it is to be a good soldier is to be going and fighting against people in Nicaragua for example right um, so it could have been richer
0: could have been
1: richer yeah so again important books but there is a missing
0: voice speaking of a missing voice before we leave a missing voice here Doctor Meduri Soto who were you listening to this year as you worked that World Outspoken
2: well, before I answer your question, I wanna say thank you, Hermano Nathan. Thank you for the ways in which you have listened and thank you for proposing mm-hmm. this theme, which is very, very important. Um, listening is, is not always easy and it takes a lot of intentionality. And I have to say that this semester in particular, and I know that academics, sometimes we tend to think of time in terms of semesters. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was uh, very difficult, very painful. Um, I was tired. I was exhausted, and so listening in times of, of a lot of pain and exhaustion can be even harder, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was I was glad for the work here at World Outspoken for the opportunity to be an intentional listener. Um, and and, and who did I listen to? Well, um, I listened to the Latino multilingual community. Right, I listen to to their pain, to those who have um, believed to be linguistically deficient in both English and Spanish. Right, Um, I I listen to to their stories. I listen to women as well, Uh, specifically those women uh, suffering through through losses, um, miscarriages. I, I ended up listening to other groups that I didn't think I was going to listen to, <laughs> that I hadn't considered necessarily. I listened to um, students, and I mean, as a professor, I I, I listen to students, right? But really putting their voices at the forefront at the wor- of the work that I'm doing here at World Outspoken was uh, really important through student student writer submission and specifically with my um, heritage speakers class, which is a class made up of Latinos, predominantly Latino students, which doesn't isn't always the norm at uh, PWIs, right? Predominantly white institutions. And so just having the opportunity to inhabit that space and to really empower my students, my Latino students who came from uh, communities where uh, they were perceived as as less than, right? And so I recently heard something um, I, that said, everyone has a voice, but not everyone is heard. And that's true, right? We tend to frame people as voiceless, but that's not true, right? We all have a voice that God has given us. The problem is that we don't always listen to those voices, right? We create hierarchies as to who we should listen to, which voices are more important, um, and so just empowering students, like your voice is important, right? Centering their voices, not only in the classroom, but uh, by them being able to to submit their, their papers to World Outspoken and having those stories that they're so familiar with and make up part of uh, such a crucial part of who they are, uh, be acknowledged by others. That is incredibly empowering. Uh, so I had the opportunity to to work with
0: students in that way real quick before we go on i do want to give a shout out to those biola students who (laughs) did some submissions i read them nathan those students hit home runs i mean it was amazing Mm. uh it was a really competitive pool of submitted Mm -hmm. papers from all over uh phd students undergrad students grad Mm -hmm. students it was it was wild the biola students showed out and i do want to say one other thing about those biola students because uh I just, it's important to name. I went uh, via Zoom to class and talked to them uh, about what they were planning on doing, writing these submissions to potentially publish an essay with World Outspoken. And Dr. Meluri Soto is one crazy good teacher, (laughs) y'all, because I showed up to this class and these (laughs) students were talking Spanish so well. (laughs) I'm a fluent speaker. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna talk in, in Spanish here. What if I mess up? These students are gonna hear me all stuttering here. No, no, no. I'm out. I'm out. I went straight English for an entire class. God, no way am I talking in Spanish. So so shout out to, to credit to you for the skill that the students demonstrated. But uh, but man, those those the students, they were they were next mm-hmm. level. They're so. bold so and they're
2: courageous. You know, and no, mm-hmm. oh, thank you for coming in. Really, the importance of seeing a Latino leader, someone that mm. looks like them, uh, that speaks like them, I think is is very important and empowering. At least it was for me when I was an undergrad. You know, I didn't see many of, of me's of, you know, someone with a similar cultural and linguistic background in positions of power and leadership. And so when I did encounter those voices, it it was like it gave me a sense of of okay, if I can do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, So thank you for, for coming and stepping into our, our classroom.
0: <laughs> yeah, so as we think about the people that we listen to, we've named a variety of groups here, uh, from students to faculty to people in churches who feel kind of suffocated in the kind of white space. There, there's a, a few groups that have been named here. I wanna think about how we listened. Uh, the reason I asked that question is you know, I, I think I've told you both in the past, and this is important to say because this is going on the Mestizo podcast, but you know, we have had pastors in the past, right, say, Man, but I don't I don't see you. I've never met you, right? Like I don't I don't see you in the ground with our congregation or in a denominational meeting, etc. That that's come up for World Outspoken. That's a typical Latino culture, right? The the hey hermano, I haven't shaken your hand, we haven't we haven't gotten together over a meal. Uh, and that's important, right? Before we before we engage the work, right? And so, given the ways in which world outspoken has worked, especially during the pandemic, where everything has been mostly remote or digital, it's important to really say out loud, "This is how we listened. This is this is how we worked." And so, I want to hear from from y'all. Uh, maybe we'll we'll stick uh, doctora meduri soto. We'll stick with you as you talked about enabling students. Right? How did you listen?
2: Yeah, yeah, I. I want to add one more group, and it's the voices of children, mm-hmm. right, that I, I hadn't thought about. I mean, I, I am a mother of a soon-to-be 16-year-old, but I think oftentimes we tend to oppress those voices on the basis mm-hmm. of, you know, they're immature, they haven't really lived, and I think that's wrong. Um, And so really leaning into those voices, they're full of wisdom, right, Um, was important. I mean, I just recently participated in the summit for Bread for the World on behalf of World Outspoken. And in our group, so we visited several Congress members' offices. In our group was a 14-year-old girl Mm. who went in there and shared her story boldly. I mean, I was amazed, right? Mm. But I think part of us, sometimes we tend to think that children's voices are not really important. Like let the adults speak, right? Um, and, and again, I think that's that's a wrong approach. Um, listening to another young woman, uh, a young adult, a 19 year old, um, we had a conversation about why is it that a lot of young people are walking away from the church, mm. right? Not, not even entering a foot in the church. And so instead of coming in with my own assumptions and prejudices or or being combative, I just listen. And I learned a lot from that conversation. And I think, I mean, honestly, frankly, I am, people thought I was going to be a lawyer when I grew up because I was always like debating people. (laughs) Right. Um, and I'm not saying debate is not good. It, it often brings about like important critical conversations. But for me, listening looked more like not engaging for the purpose of debating, mm-hmm. but engaging compassionately for the purpose of understanding and learning. Right. That, that's just where, where I was in my in my listening journey. And so doing a lot of listening and not a lot of talking um, asking a lot of questions as well. And, and it's
0: important for- to say there was mm-hmm. some direct contact there, right? Through yeah. the Bread for the World Summit, you had direct contact with people beyond the walls of World Outspoken or even your classroom.
2: Right. I think
0: right. that's important to say too, right? That there was a kind of engagement outside of that, that wasn't, uh, framed as debate, uh, debate or combat, right? It was, it was for the
2: purpose of learning. Right. Exactly. So that's what um, I, I try to engage in, in the listening act in, in that way, just asking a lot of questions. Again, sometimes we we don't we don't always ask questions for the purpose of really learning or understanding, but with the intention of reacting. And I think that that's a wrong approach and one that I have I have engaged in. So for me, it was a matter of being intentional about. Really, just standing back and listening and learning and not always reacting or giving even my feedback or opinion.
0: Dr. Cartagena, what about you?
1: So, I wanted to spend a lot of this year practicing what psychologists will call attunement. So, this is exactly what Hermana Itzel was discussing Um, a, a kind of active listening where a person that you're listening to feels seen, heard, understood. I don't typically listen for the purposes of debate. Uh, There's a lot of training in philosophy to do that, and I found it typically was toxic, exactly what you were saying, Armand. Zell. It was usually usually you were listening just for the person to finish so you could say what you wanted to say. And um, I think that's unjust. I think it's unloving. And I also think when we are engaging people, particularly now, as there's so much anti-Latino uh, racism um, in the U.S. and amongst, not it's not just our students who are catching it, we're catching it, other, other faculty are catching it, pastors, priests, etc. It's very important to listen and to help our communities heal. Uh, and I'll say that often the listening required one-on-one conversations or small group conversations where we weren't in a rush and we maybe had a coffee. Um, This is connected to um, the temptation to silence. What is it to sit in a park and to listen and to talk about the actual temptations that we face? Uh, And I found it important, too, to, to... break outside of the speech patterns that are acceptable in these historically white and predominantly white spaces, and really use the language we need to say, these things are problems. These practices, measures, etc., are actually inflicting pain. And it was important to make sure that we helped one another bluntly not feel crazy, because there's so much Gaslighting that goes on, so pretending that something is uh, not what it is, um, and that yo, you're making it up, you're imagining something's there. So yeah, you, ha- you have to you have to resist that. But then also, there are constant temptations to embrace delusions, things that you know aren't right. But if you embrace them, okay, there'll be there'll be less confrontation, um, and that's even true for abuse victims in fact that's that's consistently what abuse victims face these pressures to you know th- just just get over it couldn't you quickly forgive and forget etc cetera, et cetera. these kinds of things um so i want to say that one of the most important things i did and it was hard but it i i tried to set the tone with the first piece i i wrote where i was thinking about the god who listens and the god who hears I'm thinking about how God doesn't only hear the cries of Israel when, when Israel's in, in Egypt, but also is hearing Hagar. And I thought, okay, I, wanna, I want to enter people's sufferings, because usually those are the conversations. They were conversations full of sorrow and pain. And I think that's exactly what Christ does, and I think it, it it's an important way of being Christ-like, but it is hard. And so I found one of the reasons it was important for me to write these pieces after i listened is i had to work through a lot of what we were sharing um, because if i didn't it's very easy to be overwhelmed by it i want to add
0: something to this that neither of you have said here and that's okay but i think it was part of our strategy as we went through and i think it's important for for listeners of our podcast to know One of the things that both of you did that I really appreciated and some of our, you know, the people who made social media designs for us also were conscientious of this is we didn't listen to the stories of people so that we can fuel our content tank to, you know, exploit their story for content, right? Or, Or, you know, use their story as a kind of token to say, oh, look, 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 I've got the pulse on Latinidad. We we were very careful in the images we chose, in the in the ways that we synthesized and told the stories, the names we included, et cetera. Because, you know, no critique to our our fellow uh, content producing organizations, but that is a really easy temptation to slip into, right? To to make use of the stories instead of tell them for the flourishing of the people in them, right? Yeah. Um, that that to me is 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 of great concern and it's something that we worked hard to to be careful about in the in the ways that we told stories and one of the ways just so people know kind of practically one of the ways that I think both of you and World Outspoken in general was careful in doing this is that a lot of times the stories were fleshed into your personal life right you were bodily present for the stories told right and uh and I think that that's important right there the 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 way that you avoid tokenizing a story is making sure that you were present and experienced the trauma with the people, right? This is the scholar in residence aspect of this, right? This is the the residency part that the stories included and impacted you too. I'm not sure if either of you want to add to that. I think that that's an important thing to discuss and think about.
2: Yeah, I think what Hermano Nathan pointed out about the the listening listening patterns that we've learned from t- traditions that are not ours, right? Especially in academia is very important. So usually we're told don't insert yourself or your community stories in this discourse, right? Well, why not? <laughs> we're told be succinct, right? Be emotionless. Why, right? That That's not how we function as Latinos, right? Or even... Um, when a student you know, wanted to talk to me about something um, more personal or just wanted me to listen to their stories, did it have to be in my office and with a huge desk in between? Or could we mm-hmm. just go out to Heritage Cafe and, and have a, a nice cafe con leche, right? And have a conversation that way. So I think it's important to acknowledge how as, as Latinos, we have our own patterns of listening and understanding our stories. And I think we should embrace those.
0: Yeah, and especially the Cafe Con Leche piece. Nathan, I want to let you go as well, but I, w- I want to say something about this because I heard about this recently. Uh, I won't say the organization, we don't need to, but I know of an organization where they're asking Latinos to come forward with their stories because the organization is trying to improve. Right, And this is what I'm talking about. They're like mining our people for stories in a way that only inflicts pain on the storyteller, right? It's a kind of abstracted mining and extraction of the story. And I think that's super dangerous. Um, It's super dangerous, it's painful. I'm not sure that it's redemptive. In fact, I'd say that it's not. Um, And and that's something that uh, as scholars, we need to make sure we tag the in-residence, that that's the part that's in our minds as a point of emphasis. And that's something that I think as we talk here, it's coming to mind as a as a kind of key thread of what we have done in our work in the past
1: year. Okay, Nathan, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to add. Yeah, so I'll say t- two things. One is there's, there's a temptation to commodify our people's pain and to grow your own name, I'd say empire, by highlighting parts of our people's pains and saying, look how great I am. I've highlighted these parts of our people's pains. And this means that, this is the second point, it's actually very difficult to do what we're trying to do, which is not only listen, but amplify our and our people's voices, knowing that people will try to commodify it. And we want to try to avoid the temptations that are part of the commodification process um, and the exploitation process. But we also know that if if we're not with people and then retelling stories, the practices of erasure and ignoring are so strong that many of us, at different times, have rightly said, "Like, well, wait a second. What? What? Who? Who's like me? Who's had similar experiences? Who could I learn from?" And I'll say one final thing on that point, and that is especially when you're from Puerto Rico and there's this intense colonial erasure project. And you hear time and time again, whether it's on the island or in the broader diaspora, people talk about like, we're struggling to find our histories. We're struggling to know who's experiencing these kinds of pain and what's common and what's what's not. That's not because of a certain kind of commodification. That's because of an active game of erasure. So now, if we're going to to share those stories in ways that they haven't been shared, we want to amplify. We don't want to distort, uh, but. Again, we still have to resist this, this commodification process. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was very important for me to be a scholar in residence for a group committed to Latinos and Latinas, not exclusively, but especially um, so that I, I wasn't, for example, talking to Anglos who just want to be able to feel like, OK, we're doing a better job because, look, I listen to Latinos and Latinas once in, a, once in a while.
0: Boy, preach that capitalistic temptation to commodify, to, to mine, extract and commodify, that is something that we're going to resist as much as possible. And I think the scholar in residence yields that. I'm going to skip ahead because th- this is connecting to another question that I wanted to ask you. And so we'll just skip to that question for a moment. Maybe we'll backtrack a little later. But one of the things I wanted to think about was this idea that Dr. Bedford actually shared in a previous episode of the Mestizo podcast. Uh, Dr. Nancy Bedford uh, raised this, this uh, polarity. Between, uh, between what she called a vanguard scholar, which is the temptation. Now this is, we've talked a little bit about the dangers of how how white scholars might use Latino stories. But she, she in her in her context, she was talking about scholars of color, right? And she said, the temptation of scholars of color to consider themselves vanguard, cutting edge, leaders from the front, right? I went all the way up the academic tree, I got my PhD, I'm doctor such and such, let me lead you, let me tell you where we're supposed to go, let me tell you what we're supposed to say, let me tell you how we're supposed to vote, et cetera, et cetera, right? Be on the vanguard, cutting edge, right? She said that's a major temptation for scholars of color. The alternative, of course, is being a rear guard scholar, one that frames the problem in the widest lens possible so that our own folks could then tackle, tackle the problem with the greatest amount of equipment, with the clearest kind of eye, right? So they can see it and move forward in it as we shepherd and and guide from behind, right? To say, oh, have you seen this? Have you noticed that? That was the, the, the polarity that she presented, rear guard versus vanguard. And this extractivism is something that I think the vanguard is tempted to, right? I think of Franz Fanon. I don't normally do book recommendations here on the Mestizo Podcast, but if you've not read Wretched of the Earth, you should. You won't be able to sleep for a couple days, but it'll be good for you. At least that was my experience. I read that book and I could not sleep. But one of the things that he criticizes in that book, he criticizes what he calls colonized scholars. These are scholars, African scholars he's criticizing, right? People who are from Africa who went to study and universities in Europe, universities in the States who came back and have a colonial mind. And so they're tempted to extract and to be vanguard, right? How how did we resist that? What does it mean for us uh, to continue? What does it mean for us to continue in this rear guard posture? That's something that I wanted to talk to both of you about. Uh, Let's start here with Dr. Meduri Soto. I want to hear from you. What does it mean to continue to be rear guard?
2: it means well let me let me frame my answer and say that academia is very much a colonized space right and it functions as an ivory tower where only certain people are admitted um, i mean if we talk about the, the percentage of latina professors in the us i mean it's minute it, it's it's and it, it has nothing to do with our capabilities And it has everything to do with us not being welcomed and accepted into those spaces, right? And once you are accepted, we have to fight the temptation of reproducing the type of colonized work that will get, that it it does come with rewards. Mm -hmm. It does reward you. The system rewards you, right? When, When you perpetuate those type of ideologies that serve to oppress our own people. And so then we become oppressors ourselves of our own selves and our, our own people, right? Um, so resisting that, that temptation, um, being very courageous, a lot of humility as well is needed because you do come to, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in a Latino community, uh, low income, predominantly immigrant, where no one thought much of us in the first place right? And so then you are able to to earn a PhD. And there is a people tell you how great you are, and how different and exceptional you are, right? Uh, without really understanding the the systemic um, obstacles hmm. that were put in place. So I don't I don't consider myself like it's I didn't do anything like exceptional to earn the, this PhD, right? My circumstances might have been a bit different. And so just accepting uh, this reality and being humble. And I always consider myself a perpetual learner. And I always think that I can learn from everyone, right? So from children, from uh, immigrants, from Spanish speakers, from Spanglish speakers. I eh, creo que esta postura es, es importante para seguir haciendo el trabajo de una forma that really respects and honors. community and it's not only for for respect and honor which of course are important but also because i think that's good work that's the way to right that's that's good work
0: (laughs) let me say something about what you said you you talked about how the the system will reward us if we follow the habits of the kind of colonial institution fanon this is what he says about the colonized intellectual i'm going to read the quote from him and then uh nathan will go to you uh he says The colonized intellectual accepted the cogency of these ideas, the ideas that they inherited from colonized institutions. They accepted the cogency of these ideas, and there in the back of his or her mind stood a sentinel on duty, guarding the Greco-Roman pedestal. He adds, but during the struggle for liberation, when the colonized intellectual touches base again with his or her people, this artificial sentinel is smashed to smithereens. It's that touch, right? That cafe con leche with, mm-hmm. with la gente. It's that touch that can smash that idol, but otherwise that idol remains intact. I find that really, really helpful as language to describe this.
2: And uh, I just wanna add, sorry, but, I wanna add one thing. You know, I really hate when people speak about my community as like a bad place, like a bad neighborhood. Right, mm-hmm. and the, so people ask, "Oh, is it a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood?" And I think, "Well, what do you mean? Is it a is it a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood? Is that how you're defining good and bad?" Right, because that's definitely not how God defines good and bad. And mm-hmm. so um, I recently heard a, a quote. I don't know who who said it, but it was like, "Our neighborhoods, you know, el barrio, our hoods, they don't like they don't lack talent or knowledge. We lack resources."
1: Um as I as I think about the two postures, Vanguard versus rearguard, I confess that my main thought right now is, I suppose the importance of anybody who would take a rear guard posture avoiding the idolatry of originality. So this gets into the colonial reward system that Herman is discussing, where the, the you you mind and extract from, living peoples or historic texts and other sorts of artifacts so that you can say something new. And then you've said something new and you get all these trinkets uh, and you get removed further and further from your gente. But, trinkets is my favorite word right now. Uh, trinkets. Like, <laughs> you know, what is it like a line on a CV or maybe you get a, a, a tiny little accommodation at the end of the year if you're, if you're a faculty member or a staff member, but uh, what I'm witnessing now is mass erasure and silencing. So, Hermana Itzel could, uh, she and I can speak to this if you'd like us to say more, Hermano Ricky. But across schools in the United States that are historically um, white Christian institutions, schools are, administrators are checking syllabi to see if something seen as too woke or too CRT. And so you're watching as African-American literature, Chicano-Chicana literature, Puerto Rican literature, et cetera, it's, it's, it's getting removed from people's syllabi because professors are self-censoring. They're scared that to, if they keep this, then their jobs might be in danger. They might get a bad review. And so I want to stress that right now, one of the most important things uh, faculty members who are Latinos and Latinas can do is preserve our people's voices, their stories, artifacts. You don't have to be doing something original. And in fact, it's of the utmost importance that you, you're you taking time to continue to pass on what was already fragile and vulnerable, but has now become even more so. Um, and, and one of the reasons I think this is important, because, you know, Armando Ricky, you, you're reading a passage from Fanon who's who's writing in the 1950s, but so many people don't know what he had to say. And so you get 70 years on and people are still trying to reinvent the wheel. And it's like, well, we'd be in a much better place if we would have learned from Fanon, for example, or if we would have learned from from things like El Thames or if we would have learned from Sirene Padilla, for example, or Orlando Costas. If we would have learned from them, we'd be much better off. And I remember I met a couple of times where um, Dr. Conde Fraser has 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 encouraged Latinos and Latinas and especially pastors and priests, like make sure you know your own people's theologies and their, and their work in biblical studies. And I want to say, amen. And again, one of the things that's going on even in seminaries now is this erasure process because of fears that those who are part of what's known as the, the donating constituency aren't going to continue to give money. If they see certain things are taught, if they see certain voices are elevated.
0: Real quick, uh, I want to continue to flesh that out, but I, I want to point out that this does go back to this idea of the book list that I talked about, yep. right? That book list has, has two ways of being used. W- one is the one the the group of people who are consuming that book list, right? Just devouring every book as they continue to uh, grow in their kind of consciousness of what, what white evangelicalism and whiteness has done to the church, particularly here in the U.S., right? That's one way of doing it. and And that group my my opinion, this is my you know hot take. There's a, there's some problems there in that group, right? Because it paints the church as one kind of th- this is what happened, period, end the story, right? Um, this is what happened. But the same is true of what the other group is doing, weaponizing it to say, "Whoa, you are painting the church this way, and you got to be cast out because you're painting the church this way." Mm-hmm. When the entire time, to your point, Nathan, the entire time there was a subversive thread. There has been a church otherwise. Has been a church with its own sort of problems, no doubt, but a church otherwise. And and the names that you mentioned, man, may we say their names often, right? The names of mm-hmm. Rene Padilla, Orlando Costas, uh, Isasi Diaz, and others who 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 were in those times, right, during the mm-hmm. same kind of historical periods, fifties, sixties, seventies, doing hard work, right. And and it's threatening to some in both cases, right. But what I worry about, I worry about the first group saying we need to tear it all down and start over as if there isn't a legacy from which we can build, a rich legacy from which we can build. And I'm worried about the other group saying we need to hold some kind of the Greco-Roman sentinel, right, to go back to Franz Fanon. We need to protect the idol before it gets smashed to smithereens. I think in both groups, there's a a kind of toxicity. I don't know if you all want to say more.
2: Yeah, I think... The inclusion of those voices in our curriculum is perceived as impure, as too political, right? As if, as if the canon as envisioned was apolitical, or or somehow more pure. And that's the the irony, and the tragedy of it, as well. And that's why a lot of Latinos of scholar of uh, scholars of color. Uh, Latinos and, and, and others are, are struggling also in, in these in these spaces.
1: Yeah I, I think uh, Herman of your discussion about the importance of listening to to children and I was thinking about how Jesus says, you know let the children come to me and he curses those who would keep the children away. And, and it's it's not that he's so much arguing for childlike faith as some like to imagine, but he he's, he knows that children are marginalized people in in first century um, Jewish circles. And, and I think about how there are similar ways of a kind of paternalism, what you described before, where it's like, no, let's create a hierarchy and, and Latinos and Latinas, you're way down on the bottom. And so, yes, to insert you is seen to, to do something that's impure and, and often seen as rash and foolish. Well, no, no, no. They, they clearly wouldn't have great ideas for us to hear. And this is not what our students need. And people think that, that you're just trying to do something politically correct. Whereas what, one of the things that you're getting at, Hermano Ricky, is no, no, we're, we're trying to help you hear the whole of the church. And so I'd say, I'd, I'd, I'd add one more point to that. And that is, we have to ask, do we really believe that God, through the power of the Spirit, has called people to be teachers, preachers, and evangelists for the church? in different racialized communities. If so, one of the things we want to do is continue to listen to those teachers, preachers, and evangelists from these different communities and say, what do you have to teach us? And this is one of the reasons why I, I, I tried to offer at least a couple examples of um, multiracial listening and solidarity with, with Dr. Gaffney. Uh, and and I, I I think that those who will discourage that kind of work, are disc- they are running against both the kingdom of God and the kind of church that the spirit is cultivating.
0: Amen. I want to read one more Fanon quote, because now all of a sudden y'all got me in a Fanon mood, but uh, he says this later in the book. He says, though historically limited, the fact remains that the actions of the colonized intellectual do much to support and justify the actions of the politicians. He said, he goes on, it is true The attitude of the colonized intellectual sometimes takes on the aspect of a cult or a religion. Those are biting comments of what it means uh, for for us as scholars. We have to have courage. We have to have courage in this moment. And I wanna thank you both for the courage that you displayed this year, for the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-comforted, right? Courage that you displayed—it's the kind of boldness that the disciples displayed after being whipped by the empire, right? It's the kind of boldness that they prayed to have more of as soon as they got out of that jail. They said, "Give me more of that boldness, Lord." It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I'm convinced that those disciples were half Puerto Rican, but (laughs) uh, there are there are three things that I want to want to say here as I wrap up. One is to thank thank you um, for the efforts that you've invested this year at World Outspoken to listen and to elevate amplify the stories that have not been heard yet to remind people that there is a tradition otherwise right that that there always has been a tradition otherwise that they can pull and find roots in and then number two i want to give people that are scholars some some quick steps right to do the same to kind of replicate some of the things that that we've done in this year Um, i'm pulling these steps again from from my guy fanon uh so so not making these up talking about uh to, to go back to Nathan's point, I'm not doing anything original here, okay? So so number one, Fanon says, hey, use the tools that have been uh, given to you in these intellectual spaces. We might say the master's tools, right? But immediately after saying that, Fanon says, whoa, 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 before you go using the master's tools right away, the, the second step is perhaps a kind of preceding step to the first. You have to go back, he says, to those memories that you have of connection with your people. And you have to find trace your way to reconnect to the people again, right? So it's not just memory, it's remember how you connected to them previously and work out so that you have a real connection to them again, right? And then finally, after being kind of reintegrated, the, uh, he invites the intellectual to sit in the mystery of watching non-intellectuals work. Sit in the mystery of seeing how their minds work through a problem, how they face la lucha, right? Sit in that and then you can kind of echo from them what you have learned. Those are the three steps that I think you both have embodied and I think it's been a gift to, to us at World Outspoken and to those have been who have been in conversation with us throughout the year. And then the third thing I want to say is I want to invite the audience to speak into this, speaking of listening. Uh, there's always a way that you can engage World Outspoken. You can do so by leaving us a voicemail. 312-725-2995. Dos, dos dos uh, that's 312-729. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, I forgot. 312-725-725-2995. Two, two, nine, nine, I forgot the number in English. You see me? That's what happens when you start in Spanish. I always say that in English first. But, uh Leave us a voicemail with your name, city y pregunta, and we're going to be in conversation with these things. So write in, talk to us, talk back. This is an opportunity to do so. As we close, I'd love for y'all to give a benediction to to the to those who are listening. Dr. Uh, Doctora Meluri Soto, can I start with you? What's the final word you want to give?
2: I would say um, especially for those involved in scholarly work to be cautious, to be aware and to be intentional. Because academic traditions will lead you usually in w- only one direction, will have you listening to one particular voice and that's white males, right? And so um, listen to, to other people's voices, um, but you have to be intentional because these voices are not always put at the forefront in, in academia. And it's our responsibility to listen to them and to to center them as well.
1: And I'd add, it is of the utmost importance to walk in community and to in community strive to stay in step with the spirit. And I know that is not a common thing that especially academics will tell one another, but it's of the utmost important. Uh, importance if if the lord has called you to be in a place and to love and care for people and to preserve your people's voices it's important that you stay in step with the spirit because what the spirit may lead you to is likely to lead you to is probably going to be quite counter to what these institutions or the other communities that you're a part of would expect yeah this is cruciform work yeah
0: it's cruciform work may jesus be our guide con eso se acabo